Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help your scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. His name is Rav Daliwal, investor at Crane Venture Partners. Rav, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me along today. Excited to speak with you. My pleasure to have you on the show and uh, your amazing background uh, and your current role at, at Crane really creates a lot of uh, curiosity uh, across the scale of community. And I'm sure that it will be an amazing show and we'll share amazing experiences of your previous experience. But get, so, let's yeah. get to know more about, about your career and about yourself. So who, who is Rav Daliwal? Great question. Well, uh, I guess I like to describe myself, Mike, as a recovering software executive. Uh, so I spent about 20 plus years um, working sort of in tech and in enterprise software. I, I started my career with, uh, you know, all the big, large user suspects, IBM, uh, Salesforce, Microsoft, et cetera. Although Salesforce was a, a 3,000 person company when I was there, but it was, was big for, for me then. Um, and then the last sort of 10, 11 years, I've been really fortunate to uh, be very early uh, in a lot of sort of hyper growth startups. So. Uh, I was very early at a company called Yammer. We were eventually acquired by Microsoft. I, I still think it's one of the fastest uh, billion dollar plus exits, I think, in the Valley. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to be uh, very early at Zendesk and we went public. And then um, prior to uh, my new life in, the, in venture capital, uh, I was the first UK employee at Slack. So I helped uh, get the business up and running and I actually founded uh, the global CS team. So. One of the common uh, patterns in all my work experience in, in software has been sales and success. So really focusing on how do we make customers successful so we can get repeat growth revenue from them. So that's just a, a little bit about me uh, and my career. Love it. And, and let us know a little bit more about Crane uh, Venture Partners and uh, your role today. Yeah, so Crane is a, um, a seed stage investment fund based here in London. Uh, it focuses on European tech companies, uh, especially companies that are doing um, really interesting things with data. And, uh, uh, you know, so that kind of lends itself very much to solutions in the sort of AI, machine learning, analytics, data security, security space. So uh, the founders of the firm are, are uh, Krishna Visvanathan and Scott Sage, who are very tenured investors formerly with Draper. Uh, and it's been such an um, amazing experience for me to be at this stage of my career and, and get access to all these amazing founders and tech companies and helping them to uh, build their businesses as well as learning all about the world of venture. So it's been an exciting uh, couple of years. Love it. And it seems that you are good uh, at selecting the right companies to join. So <laughs> well, maybe I'm a good investor. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's. I've been joining Salesforce, and Salesforce has been one one of the quickest, fastest companies to get yeah. to twenty billion in revenues, and the largest SaaS company in the world. Been at Yammer, you have already described it, uh, the amazing milestone of Yammer, Zendesk, Slack. Um, so yes, it's it's promising that uh, you have been uh, creating very well uh, the the companies that you have been joining until until now. So yes. maybe we have there. Uh, an amazing quality and skill for for becoming an investor now. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I mean, I, I think I was actually when I stepped into the world of VC, I went to an event, um, uh, kind of a presentation day for security companies, and I was chatting with a very tenured executive, and he said, "What have you been doing?" And I said, "I was here, and I was at Slack, and I was at Zendesk." He goes, "Oh, you're a really 
good investor. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you've chosen to invest your time in these places. And I'd never thought about that. Like it never occurred to me. And then it really got me thinking. And then I actually realized what I had been doing uh, without realizing it was responding to products or, or, or solutions that I just thought were great. Like I really loved this product. Most of the companies who I joined when I joined them were single product companies. They did one thing, they did that thing really, really well. Um, and then I noticed that the other thing that I'd done was join companies where the founders had previously failed as entrepreneurs, which may sound sort of counterintuitive, but they'd, you know, uh, Stuart and Mickle, they'd had, you know, two, three, David, they'd had two, three custom companies that hadn't been successful and they'd learned a great deal. So they weren't first time founders. They were that much more seasoned and mature. Uh, and then I also found that <clears throat> what I was also doing was to so I said, well, what's the opportunity for me to develop? What skills do I want to grow? But also, more importantly, what do I bring to the table? So what, what can I help with? And I didn't realize that's what I had been kind of doing in my mental model. Uh, the rest is all just networking, luck, and timing. So, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure the, the listeners of this podcast, uh, uh, maybe, maybe their investors don't tell them, but, you know, there is an element of kind of meeting the market at the right time and, and a little bit of fortuitous luck in networking. So... Uh, that's kind of a been it's been very very interesting journey and i think even that applies to crane you know i think it's a <clears throat> it's a terrific fund uh, great uh, successful investors with a really good season track record uh, and uh, just amazing talent there so i'm i feel very fortunate that's awesome so as you know we always cover three critical ingredients yeah. in the show and you are more than invited to challenge them uh, number one radical focus number two world-class leadership and uh, number three a culture of uh, execution and um, there is a very interesting article that maybe i just uh, bring it to the table uh, yeah. at the moment that you have been um, circulating across your LinkedIn um, channels that you have written yourself, of course, about the difference between builders and scalers. And yeah. it was kind of why I said, Rav, you need to come to the show. We have been trying to have you on the show for a long time. So now it's the time. You need to, you need to come to share with the, the community uh, the amazing lessons that you share in the article and, of course, to, to, to talk about all things uh, scaling up and sharing your experience. So let us know a little bit more about yeah. uh, the builders versus scalers kind of profile. Yeah, th thanks for that, Mike. And I appreciate the, the kind words about the article. I, I think it actually touches on at least two of your three core areas, right? Which is world-class leadership culture and, and the culture of execution. But I think one of the common patterns I've seen personally and also now see now I'm on the investment side of defense is that hiring for skills outside of their domain expertise is very challenging for founders. So, you know, you, you may be a more commercially oriented founder or a more technical product oriented. There will come a time you're gonna have to hire outside of your ex domain of expertise. So, you know, the natural inclination there is to go and hire the most experienced person you can find in that domain. So in the article, I use the example of customer success, but that this could just as easily apply to um, uh, sales, sales, especially sales or marketing or even engineering. Uh, and the idea, and that seems like a very sensible idea because if you go and say, well, I'm going to find someone very tenured, very experienced, probably from a large company that understands this domain, and they're going to have a playbook, and then I can bring them in, and then I no longer have to worry about uh, that part of the business because I got the most experienced person I can find. 
the problem there is, and I categorized it in the article, is those those types of executives or, or, or people are scalers. So their skill set is taking something that's already reasonably well understood, and that there may be even a version one of it. There may be a version one of how you sell, and there may be a version one of how you do customer success. And their, their skill set is to refine it and amplify and accelerate it, right? They very rarely, because of their tenure and the size and complexity of what they're managing, they're normally quite far removed from the day-to-day, the coal face. So if you bring them into a smaller startup that's scaling, um, it can be really challenging because they go, well, actually, I'm very attuned to scaling up off a certain playbook, and you don't have a playbook, uh, but I don't know how to build one. So I'll what I'll do is I will go and grab all my old people from my old team who know how to build one, right? And again, that might sound sensible, but the problem is that the team will come over and they will actually reinforce the bias to the old, the previous company's playbook even more. And then you hit all these other problems. The culture starts to shift. Maybe some of your earlier tenured employees who may not have those years of experience, but have a lot of institutional knowledge about your startup, they decide to leave. Uh, and then you, you have these whole other problems. Uh, and so what I was advocating in the article is hire a builder at that stage, not necessarily a scaler. And what a builder is, I categorized it as someone who maybe their experience is measured in years, not decades. Uh, maybe they're a manager or on the cusp of management because you, you, know, you need people who know how to hire top talent and find the right talent. But they're not, you know, they're not people who are running 100, 300, 400 person size organizations. Uh, and preferably people who have got some varied experience. So of startups at either the same stage or at slightly further stages than you are, because they tend to be very good at lateral thinking. So they'll come in and go, well, actually, I we don't have a playbook, but I recognize some patterns here from my experience. So let's take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And then let's build version one of our playbook. Let's build version one of our sales motion or, or our customer success motion. And for a founder, Hiring a builder is a lot less risky because you, um, first of all, materially, they're cheaper, right, than trying to hire, hire a, right. a, a, a very tenured executive who will probably need a signing bonus and will be leaving a lot of stock on the table, et cetera. But second, you, um, if they develop and accelerate, you've got probably your inbuilt scaler there. That person could go on and become VP or SVP, but you still reserve the right as the business scales to bring in a scaler at the right time to coach and develop that person and uh, and amplify what they've done. So the kind of thrust of the article was, think about hiring builders at uh, this kind of acceleration phase you're at. And when you're comfortable that, you know, we have a basic motion, it may not be perfect. Now's the time to go and find a scaler. Don't do it the other way around because, you know, generally it doesn't end well. Now, having said that, there are scalers who are amazing builders. I've been right. fortunate enough to work for at least one of them in my career. But the problem is they're very rare and they're very expensive. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. So it, it, you know, and and so that was kind of the the thrust of the article. And and it's been interesting because it seems to have kind of touched a little bit of a no. And I've had you know feedback from people like yourself who have said, "Wow, yeah, I have seen this problem a million times." It, 
it doesn't just apply to CS, you know, founders should think about it for sales and for marketing, et cetera. So that's just kind of a little bit about the article. And I think we're, you know, getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it really taps into, you know, your point about world-class leadership. Yeah. There's a real difference between leadership and management. You know, we can talk about that a bit later, but there's also this idea of what kind of leadership do I need? Do I need someone to build or someone to scale? Love it. Yeah. And, and that's a good point uh, that I always appreciate, also appreciate your understanding of, of CS. So we had Nick Meta on the show, the CEO yeah, of GameSide, who kind of created uh, the CS category with uh, Alison so Pickens. Yeah. How much great work popularizing the category, yeah. And Talison also has been in, in the in the podcast um, yeah. as well. So, and uh, this is kind of, I would say, starting with radical focus, especially at Series A, Series B of SaaS businesses, we need to be able to create that revenue machine that is repeatable, yeah. um, profitable, and, uh, and scalable. And usually we tend to focus too much on the acquisition engine and we forget the potential, especially at early stage, um, the potential of, of, the, um, of the retention engine mm. on, on creating that amazing revenue machine that we start really scaling up exponentially after um, Series B or when we raise the, the Series C uh, yeah. round. So, and I, I also saw the, the metric of net revenue retention getting being much more aware of the public from the numerous articles of Jason Lemkin from Saster um, yeah. as well. So I'm sure that you have some very important points about creating a CS culture and, and creating an amazing retention engine and yeah. how it might help you when we get into scale mode. Right? Yeah, this is, it's a really great question. I, I think fundamentally, and I'm putting my investor hat on now, is there's, most people think there's two types of sales, there's inbound sales and there's outbound sales, right? And that's kind of been accepted wisdom. I optimize for when I'm looking at product market fit, it's mostly all inbound. Uh, or if I have a self-service motion, it's mostly inbound. Uh, and then I get to a certain size, scale, complexity of buyer, I go outbound. But there's a third, there's inbound, outbound, and there's what I call continuous sales, right? So. Mm -hmm. This is something you know that I've been talking to founders and, and entrepreneurs a lot about, which is if your aspiration is to be the next Salesforce or the next Zendesk or you know name whatever high volume SaaS successful right. company is, you will come to a point where 50, 60, 70% of your new dollars are coming from the install base. So it makes absolute sense to optimize your go-to-market engine to include how I create continuous sales motion. It's it, most of how SaaS companies, modern SaaS companies are organized. We have changed the way we develop software. We have changed the way we sell it. We changed the way we develop it and the way we distribute it, but we have not changed the organizational structure. It's still based on the on-premises days. We build it, we sell it, someone deploys it, and then we renew it, right? If we are in a subscription model and a continuous delivery cycle of product and feature, the sale never ends. It's an ongoing, it's a continuous sales motion. Yet most founders and most investors actually advise you to optimize for, you know, as you say, the acquisition and beyond that, magic will happen, right? And the this has been slightly compounded historically because we talked about Salesforce earlier. 
Salesforce kind of pioneered the idea of success. I think Mark Benioff, I think, took the idea from Oracle and really made it a thing. But their whole focus in doing that was on retention. They were having 8% gross churn. So they needed to do something about that. And I think that kind of uh, thinking that success is about churn prevention retention is still very prevalent. Really success is about growth. It's about continuous selling. So it's not just how do we retain the revenue, but how do we create the conditions with the customer to get more revenue, right? And, uh, and I think that's why I spend a lot of time talking to founders, even at very small early stages to say, hey, you're driving product market fit. You need to think about some basic CS function, even if it's someone in product, because you've got to have someone working with the customer to help you accelerate your product market fit, right? Because how you build it and how you think they use it and how they actually use it tend to be two wildly different things. And you, you, you know, in that early stage, you've got to optimize for product market fit. When you're getting there or got there, you want to even scale up more CS because when you're building your go-to-market fit engine, you need more value stories to, to pop into the top of the funnel. You need more examples of real world value to help the go-to-market teams uh, um, drive more sales. And then when you're really foot, putting the foot on the accelerator, uh, series C, B, Series B+, plus, you're not only adding customers and employees, you're doing everything faster. And so the organizational overhead for a founder of moving that fast with poor retention is a nightmare. You want to be in that position from a base of very, very strong retention. So you can, you know, you can optimize for growth rather than worrying about the leaky bucket. Now you would not be able to do what Salesforce did. You would not be able to spend the capital to build a 5,000 person organization <laughs> to stop the 8% churn, right? So that's why, um, you know, that old phrase, you fix the roof when it isn't raining, right? <laughs> so uh, try not to think about sales and post sales. Try to think about first sale, next sale, next sale, next sale. How do I build a go-to-market engine where success is part of the way we go to market, it's not the bit that happens at the end. So kind of a long rambling answer, but I think I just wanted to kind of encapsulate a little bit about sort of philosophically what I believe, but also what I've seen work and what I work with founders on, you know, almost all day, every day. Exactly. Uh, also something very positive is kind of moving the, um, the mindset from controlling churn, assuring that we have the less churn possible yeah. to and to save customers at risk to start thinking, as you said, how can we make customers successful? Yeah. And how can we be successful with their success? Which is much more the kind of the angle of net revenue retention is Correct. how much are we growing from existing customers? And if we are growing at the amazing rates of Twilio or Slack, it's uh, 150%, 140%. Yeah. Uh, in order to double, you need to grow 50 or 60% in terms of new business. Exactly. Which is different from growing 80 or 90%. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I would add one thing about that to, to your point there, Mike, uh, Mike, which is, yes, it is about reframing it from a negative of churn prevention to a positive of growth. It's actually, a, I would add a word there, it's fast realization of value because you could have a great product and you could just sell it to the customer and leave them to it. Right. But the, the challenge with that is if it takes them six months in a 12 month subscription to figure out the true value of your product, 
that is a very risky proposition. So really what CS is, is an accelerator for value, right? How do I shorten the time to value? Not only get them seeing value quickly, but get them using the product in the most sophisticated, most proficient way, because then we have the perfect conditions to retain the revenue and a very long window to come back and talk to them about doing more revenue with us, right? So it's this, this idea of accelerating the value and the proficiency quickly so you're creating the conditions for the next sale. You know, and this is why sales and CS alignment is so critical. Like it's so, so critical because you want to lay the foundations for that fast time to value before the sales closed. Absolutely. I, I love it. And kind of makes me think how much can we uh, optimize the onboarding, the adoption flow, and and of course to align the QBRs with the clients, uh, with the NPS, and what we are, uh, what the CS and and the sales teams are doing, even the marketing and the product teams. So it's kind of it brings the the my my next question and the 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 next ingredient, the world class leadership, the world class team, yeah. and something that we have discussed several times on the show, the importance of having a revenue team. Uh, a team that works together to create that revenue machine yeah. and it needs to be CS, it needs to be marketing, it needs to be product, it needs to be sales right. all together serving the customer. And, and I, I would say even, I would probably even say revenue, sustainable revenue, because exactly. if, if, you say, if, you, if you say revenue, it's like everyone will default to new revenue, right? Well, we want new revenue for sure. Otherwise we don't need to be a company. We should all pack up and go home, but we want that new revenue to be sustainable because what we don't want to do is have to work three times harder to make up every dollar we lost at the other end, <laughs> right? So, you know, that, 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 is, um, that I think is the key is how do I execute in such a way that we're incentivized, aligned and collaborating each part of the go-to-market engine from, you know, top of funnel down to sustainable long-term revenue, right? What um, happens, and I wrote about this recently, in an article I call the everything department is when you're on this scaling journey, and I'm sure some founders listening to this will recognize this, you get to a certain size of complexity and pace where the customers just have these needs that you never thought about or don't aren't owned anywhere, right? So like we're doing really well and suddenly we've just signed 100,000 seats and these people are asking us for stuff we never thought about, right? <laughs> And or they asking us for stuff that we never really baked into the product or whatever. So the natural inclination then, first couple of times that happens, you kind of grab everyone or grab someone from sales and engineering, whatever, we'll, we'll sort it out. And then it keeps happening and you realize that's not scalable. So you create a customer function, right? Customer success. But the problem with that is they're at the end of this go-to-market production line. So what ends up happening is they will own everything that either doesn't fit or doesn't have an owner or isn't wanted elsewhere in the go-to-market. <laughs> so then, then they're not able to drive growth. All they're doing is reacting. They're just owning everything else, right? And that is the one tip I've always sort of suggested to founders is don't just create a function out of reaction to unmet problems. Be intentional about how you want to grow future revenue from your existing customer base, you know, and th that will help you minimize that problem, I think. Got it. Maybe that's a good point also inside the, the world-class leadership slash team slash culture. Yeah. Um, 
then what we what we are seeing in terms of models of the combination or the collaboration between uh, CS and cells is that especially in enterprise um, the responsibility to upsell is being delivered on cells nowadays and CS should be much more tracking NPS and ensuring that the client is adopting the, the product, uh, that the onboarded goes successfully, they are happy with, with the product. So when we got into the QBR or a conversation about how can we serve you the best, the salespeople are in a good position or the account executives or the account managers are in a good position yeah. to, to move, uh, to increase the, um, the average revenue per account of, uh, of the client. What, what's your view in terms of this mix uh, of, of collaboration with CS? So I think it's really interesting because we can talk about metrics there because I actually don't think it is sensible for CS to focus on sentiment metrics. I think they need to focus on business metrics. So firstly, overall have a North Star goal of net revenue retention, but really what they should be focusing on is indicators of usage that they know correlate to value. We can show that the customer can do something faster, cheaper, easier, et cetera. And that translates to some kind of bottom line outcome for them. So I think it should be a little bit more prescriptive. From a, an execution point of view, I really feel what works best is uh, alignment to common territory, a common book of business. So one of the problems I often see is people say, well, we've got these real problem with handovers and you know coordination. It's like, well, sales is organized by industry vertical, but CS is organized by employee size, right? <laughs> So this doesn't work, right? They're not, they're not in any way working on some joint territory. So I think the first thing to do to get really like world-class execution is to say that we work on a common book of business. So if I am the CSM for if I'm the salesperson for DAC, I have an aligned CS person for DAC. And that is our joint book of business, right? That's as an example. And then I think the next step to for that world-class execution is some kind of overlapping incentive, right? So I want my salespeople out of their compensation to be focused on new revenue, right? But what if I make 5% of their comp based on the customer hitting a certain usage target in 30, 60, 90 days? Now I have a strong incentive to make sure my CS person is set up to deliver that goal. What if I give my CS person to say, well, 95% uh, of your comp, Mike, is based on net revenue retention, but I'm going to make 5% of your comp uh, contingent on you helping this deal to close, right? Now what we've got is overlapping incentive, a strong enough, hopefully a strong enough desire to set each other up for long-term success on a common book of business. And too often I don't see that happening. And it goes back to this production line idea is we have broken go-to-market into these distinct siloed functions and incented them all differently, <laughs> right? And that is a manufacturing overhang. It doesn't actually reflect how we you know, build and sell software, right? So you would not build software that way anymore at all, <laughs> but we still seem to sell that way. So, so I think from a world-class execution point, that is um, what I would always recommend. I know I've seen that works best. You are always going to have people who are, no, it doesn't work for me, or I'm not going to get, it's fine. But, you know, incentives drive really good, you know, incentives really drive behavior. So I think it's important to think about if I want to set this continuous sales motion, how do I create an incentive structure and an alignment structure? Sales and success don't even have to be in the same organization for that to work. They can be in completely different organizations. 
It's just okay. that you are trying to continue, uh, try to drive to that continuous sales motion by doing that. The other thing is also, um, and, and then it's another historical overhang. Oh, well, we sell and then we give to success. And what we want success to do is deploy the product, onboard the users, do the change management, solve any technical issues, convince them to upsell and get them to renew, right? And it's like, wow, I don't know any one person that has all of that skill, right? So I think the other, the other execution uh, excellence to think about is selling is a team sport. It, you should think about account teams. It takes a, someone to be responsible for the commercial health of the customer, could be the original seller, could be an account manager, and that you need someone who's responsible for the product health of the customer, CS services partner, and they need to be aligned to work together. And I think that's the other thing that I would always recommend around execution excellence is think about your customer from the commercial health as well as the product health. Love it. Very good point. You already kind of introduced the, the culture of execution uh, bit, uh, but you were talking about leadership and management. Is there any other uh, tip or any other experience that you'd like to share on, on still on, on the second ingredient? This is a great question because you should ask me about this next month as well, because I'm about to run a session for our portfolio founders on building a hiring framework. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, hiring... You know, all of this alignment, execution, incentive structure, none of it will work if you don't hire the right people, right? Definitely. So one of my other real tips from a, a leadership and a management point of view is over-invest in building a very robust standardized hiring process. But that process should focus as much on behaviors as it does on competency. So, you know, if you're an early stage founder and you just need to get stuff done, you over-index on competency. This person knows how to do X, right? Mm -hmm. But their performance and their long-term success is very, very heavily correlated to past and present behavior, mm -hmm. right? So you, I'm sure you've seen it. I'm sure you talked to thousands of founders ago. That person was great, but they left a trail of destruction behind them. They delivered on their number, but the management debt that we had was enormous, right? So I think the other thing I would say is make sure you hire a builder when you need one and a scaler when you need one and get that timing right. But make sure that you have a framework in place for consistently hiring A players based on the behavioral traits that will make them successful. So, uh, you know, the, if you're hiring salespeople, key behavioral trait, integrity. That just goes without saying, right? But you should test for that, right? Okay. You know, test for that in the process, right? Ask behavioral questions to get a sense of, do you have good integrity? If you're in sales, you need a lot of grit and determination. You're going to get turned down. People are going to slam the door in your face. Do you want someone who's going to fold and go, oh, I can't deal with it? Or do you want someone who's going to pick themselves up even when they've lost the deal and keep going, right? These are kinds of the behavioral traits that you want to be baking into your framework for hiring. Uh, and that I think is, you know, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a huge advocate for this and I was the biggest cynic about it, right? So I worked for a leader who really helped drill this into me and the wider team that actually optimizing for the behaviors you need is as if not more important uh, than the competencies. And I was not convinced, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I was just like, yeah, look, we give them a scenario and we give them some tests and we just make sure they're not crazy and we'll be fine. 
And I realized, no, he was absolutely right. You know, you got to have a framework that really leans into behavior as much as ability. And that is the way to build a consistent, high-performing team. Love it. And in terms of the culture of execution, you already shared some insights there. Uh, we always discuss the importance of having that operating system and those sets of rituals that allow all yeah. the team to be aligned on the same page, the weeklies, the monthlies, the quarterlies, the all ends, etc. No. Is there anything uh, or any experience that you'd like to share with, with the community there? Yeah. Um, one thing that I've noticed now from working closely with founders and being in companies that have grown very quickly is that actually as a leader, what you're trying to do every day actually is absorb, adapt, and manage a constant amount of change, <laughs> right? That's really what you're trying to do, right? It's However, true. change management skill is something that is not widely pushed. You know, founders are not widely pushed into building that muscle by coaches or, or mentors. And what I can actually say is to build that culture, understand how to do good change management, right? Get immersed in, I spent a lot of my own personal time uh, getting change management certifications because I realized this is actually what I'm doing. I'm trying to manage constant amount of change. Change is very unsettling for people it, and it it can throw them off their game, throw them off execution. It can take the business off in whole different directions. Helps you actually understand your customers better. Your customers are experiencing change constantly. So I think, Outside of all those great cultural things of, you know, always default to open communication, communicate, over communicate rather than under, it's better, but just try and get some skill around that change piece because change management is actually all about behavior change. Uh, you know, project management's about tasks, change management is about behaviors. And so if you can get more comfortable about understanding different change models, understanding how people might be feeling through a change, how you may need to adjust how you communicate or collaborate, that will stand you and the culture, I think, in very, very good stead. I'll give you a practical example. I was in my first leadership team. There were three of us who ran the business. We met for one hour every Monday uh, in, in one of the meeting rooms, and we did not realize that this petrified the rest of the, the guys because they were like, what are they doing in there? What are they talking about? What are these plans? And we realized, you know what, we haven't managed this change. We have not communicated to the team that actually this is an incredibly boring meeting where we do lots of boring things. Uh, and so we decided to make it open door. We said, anyone can come to the meeting. There is nothing to nothing to hide here. And as soon as we did that, nobody came because they were like, well, how interesting <laughs> can this be if, they, if they've made it open door? But do you see what I mean? We, we didn't factor in that this represented a change for the team. There's three new leaders in the business and they're meeting everyone. So, you know, just a small example. Uh, it's, that's that's pretty amazing uh, yeah. way. And I really love this kind of uh, distinction between change management that is much more around behaviors and project management uh, about tasks. I think it's, it's a good reflection for yeah. everyone that is uh, hearing us. And, and especially in, in scale-ups, it's we are always in crisis mode and doing very important transitions yeah. almost every single quarter, every 13 weeks. So it's yeah. it's a lot of change for the majority uh, of, of the sure. teams that people involve it. So it's-, uh, it's I think it was um, Dwight Eisenhower who said, uh, you know, plans are useless, but planning is invaluable. 
right? Exactly. <laughs> you know? So in a startup, having a plan is going to get invalidated within like a week, right? Exactly. Planning, the process of planning. It's really incredibly and it kind of makes me think that there are a lot of things that we are not able to anticipate. So let's at least solve the ones we are able to anticipate. So at least we are free for taking care of the ones we, we can't work or uh, before yeah. they happen, right? Because we, we can't anticipate we are not. Yeah, there's all the externalities, uh, you know, that you have no control over, right? That they could just exactly. Exactly. COVID being the classic example, right? It's an externality. I'm sure nobody <laughs> nobody factored that in, right? So. so it would be good that the machine was in very well in place, so you are able to get as much time as possible to to deal with with the transition yeah. to the new environment. And this is actually the both the pleasure and the pain of working in a fast growing startup. You know, it's not static; it's constantly evolving. There's a new challenge every day that can take quite a bit of time to get used to but once you get used to it, it it's kind of a little bit addictive you know I think you can you can really really get addictive to it and I think fundamentally it's the you know we were talking about builders and scalers and going back to that point yeah. uh, scalers they are designed to manage predictability repeatability and efficiency that's why you have that sort of large structure with a scaler builders are managing constant change. Right? They're figuring out, iterating faster. Uh, and I think that, again, that's that's why it's so critical to get the right type of person in at the right time. Yeah. Absolutely. Great points. And I, I would feel that you need to come uh, much more often to the show, oh, Rob, because there, there is so much to, to discuss. But let's go into our last and favorite question of the show. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Uh, well, that's a great yeah. question. I would say at a very tactical level, drink far less coffee. It is <laughs> 5.30 in the afternoon here and I'm on a fifth cup, I think. But in all seriousness, it does tie into, I think my younger self, I would really give the advice of, you know, take your well-being seriously. You know, um, we talked about this idea of it, sort of it's addictive to work in this kind of environment and it is and you do it because it's fun but it's also very taxing now when you're younger you feel indestructible most of the time you don't realize that actually this stuff does wear you down you, it's so important to eat well not too much coffee get lots of exercise sleep well i think you know probably that would be the be best the best bit of advice i would give my younger self is optimize for really good sleep because it, it, as a now I've got older, I've understood like, you know, the old joke of, you know, I need eight hours at night and at least 10 in the day. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's really, really important to get, uh, to look after yourself, just your well-being. I think, you know, the, uh, uh, that, I, that I think has been a big learning for me looking back on my earlier years. Rob, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. No, it's been great. I really appreciate it, Mike, and, uh, and look forward to maybe speaking again in the future. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your journey from 1 million to 1 trillion a little bit easier and that you are able to leverage some of the lessons learned by the operators and investors who have been there, done that before and mitigate some of the risks uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the lessons learned from, from them. So see you soon and keep scaling.